When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to be here today with uh, the University of Pittsburgh's Chancellor Emeritus, Mark Nordenberg, a good friend here in Pittsburgh and someone who has had an amazing tenure as a leader in the city. Mark, so good to have you on the podcast. It's great to be with you, David. Thanks for your invitation. Um, to start out, could you tell people just a little bit about your own background? Where, where did you grow up? When, when did you move to Pittsburgh? Well, I was born and raised in northern Minnesota in the city of Duluth. Uh, Duluth is a big hill, so we could look out our living room window and see Lake Superior and across to Wisconsin. Uh, we considered it in our hearts to be God's country. Uh, and aside from time in World War II and, uh, and, and for education, my parents uh, had always lived in that area, as well as the three Nordenburg kids. Uh, so that was home in our minds at the time. Uh, we first moved to Pittsburgh the summer before my senior year in high school when my father was transferred here by U.S. Steel. Uh, I could describe that experience in ways that are reminiscent of federal crimes, that I was dragged across state lines against my will. Uh, But we did come. Uh, We found that we loved Pittsburgh and we loved the people of Pittsburgh. Uh, My dad was transferred to Chicago after two years, and we all gravitated back to what I would call the true Midwest uh, until I had a chance to return as a young adult and to join the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. Great. And and 
that's a, a background we share. So I moved down to Texas when I was 16, halfway through high school. That was quite a shock because my dad had gotten a new job. What was your adjustment like completing that last year of high school here in Pittsburgh? And, and how did you sort of go about the whole college application process with all that happening? Well, the, the adjustment was challenging, but it was certainly a period of growth. Uh, and I look back on it now and I think how important that was to my development. Uh, I never would have applauded uh, the move at that point in time, uh, but it turned out to be a uh, very good thing for me in a whole range of ways. Uh, you asked about the college application process, uh, and I'm smiling as I respond because uh, I went to Teal College, a small Lutheran school here in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I got a great education there. I uh, got a scholarship there. But one of the things that affected my college application process was that our family had somehow become closer through this process of moving, and I didn't want to go very far from my family. Uh, so my sister, who's a year younger, and I both went to Teal. Meanwhile, uh, before she even started college, my father was transferred again to the Midwest. So it was not as if they uh, left town in the dead of night without leaving a forwarding address. Uh, but it kind of felt that way. Uh, and, and then indirectly, I guess, uh, I spent summers in Chicago. Uh, and that was a, uh, an eye-opening experience, too. And, and I'm curious, Teal is one of the schools in Chatham's athletic conference, so we know them well, have gotten to know their president, Susan Traverso, very well. How was it? There's a lot of colleges, universities still staying close to Pittsburgh. How did you come to choose Teal and what, what, what did you study there? Well, it, it, you know, uh, interestingly, uh, first, Teal came to my attention in part because my sister went to a Luther League convention there uh, and she really liked it. And we were a uh, Lutheran family. Uh, I did earn a competitive scholarship there, and I was a uh, kind of middling runner on a state championship uh, high school cross-country team here in Pittsburgh, and I wanted to keep running, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that at a big place, and a small place just was more appealing to me, and so... Uh, as I say, it turned out to be a good place. Uh, I know Susan very well. Uh, I was an active member of the board at Teal for a decade before the term limits that I had worked into the bylaws uh, kicked me off. Uh, but a few years ago, she asked whether I would go back on either as an active or an emeritus trustee, and I agreed to the emeritus status. I enjoy working with her. I think she's very good. So, so tell us about the, the sort of the early stages of your careers. What, what did you study? When did you decide to go into the law? Well, I, I was a math major at Teal. I was a child of Sputnik. So if you were good in science or math, you were pushed to be in science or math. Uh, and uh, uh, so that was the path I took. 
but I would say that I became a true liberal arts student. I took as much political science and economics almost as I did math. Uh, and once math became uh, sophisticated enough that it was less easy for me to grasp its practical applications, uh, I became less interested in it. Uh, I can remember telling my father, with whom I had a great relationship, that I thought I wanted to go into law. Uh, and he said, uh, well, you better think about those opportunities you're leaving behind in science and math. Uh, but that's all he said. And, and of course, law is a great default choice. Uh, you know, if you want to go into medicine and you haven't taken organic chemistry, uh, you know, you're in trouble. Uh, and if you want to get a PhD in physics and you haven't really loaded up on undergraduate physics, you've got a problem. Uh, but law school in some ways is like a continuation of a liberal arts education is broadening. And it did appeal to me, though I didn't know any lawyers. Uh, and wasn't exactly sure what they did. But I thought oh, I could be happy with that, which proved to be the case, too. And, and so where, where did you end up going to law school? I went to law school at the University of Wisconsin, uh, which is where my father had uh, finished his undergraduate education after World War II. My parents were married in Madison. Uh, and so they had friends and we visited Madison from time to time. I thought of it as a great public university. I also was uh, fortunate enough that uh, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune had created a uh, foundation, really, in the name of his lawyer, uh, Weymouth Kirkland, of the great then Chicago law firm of Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, and they uh, awarded competitive scholarships to students who were from the five or six, six state Chicagoland area. Uh, and intended to go to law school in that same area. Well, my parents had moved to Chicago, so I qualified. Uh, and I can remember them flying me into Chicago, and I had interviews with uh, a group that included uh, Illinois Supreme Court justices and uh, deans of Chicago law schools, and I uh, won that scholarship, which I could then apply at the University of Wisconsin that's where I went. Uh, it was almost like uh, going to another planet from Greenville, Pennsylvania to Madison, Wisconsin uh, in the Vietnam era. Slightly uh, different politics, I'm guessing. Well, very different <laughs> politics and a very different social life. Uh, but again, that meant it was a time of growth for me. Uh, and there was something appealing, David, about moving from a place where I literally knew everyone, <laughs> you know, and you couldn't get the names out fast enough to greet personally the people you crossed on campus, and then going to a place where, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you were much more anonymous. Uh, and I treated 
uh, law school a lot more like a job. Uh, and I got married during my first year law school, and that influenced that too. So I uh, owe a great deal to both Teal College and the University of Wisconsin. And as you were going through law school, did you think at the time that you were going to enter academic law, or were you? Did you contemplate going into practice or judgeship or other routes, career routes? Well, first, I I had a uh, uh, an extensive military commitment. Uh, I received the direct commission into the JAG Corps, and I had a four year commitment coming out of law school which evaporated with the end of the Vietnam War when they were trying to cut back on all of the uh, military ranks. Uh, What happened that shaped my views in that regard is that the first law school class I had as a student uh, was the first law school class that my mentor had as a professor. Uh, And I had him five times a week in a small group uh, setting for the the first semester. Uh, And at the end of that semester, he asked me whether I would be interested in being his research assistant, uh, which I was then for two and a half years. And that was unusual for a first year student to get recruited into a uh, spot like that. And we worked on a range of things, almost all environmental uh, issues, though he had been a federal prosecutor in New York City. Uh, And watching his life, I thought, well, this might be something I'd like to try at some point in time. Ironically, I was driven mainly, I think, by the freedom that he had as an academic uh, to kind of channel his scholarly energies into things that were of interest to him. I had no particular idea that I would uh, love teaching. I would love being a a professor. uh, And then, uh, you you know, teaching was something that I did just love. Uh, and, And over time, as you'll understand, when I became an administrator, I gave up all the freedom uh, that most faculty members have. Uh, so it was a, uh, in some ways, uh, an uninformed choice, uh, but a choice that uh, I, I made. Uh, and, and those were peculiar circumstances, too, which I'll talk about if you'd like me to. Uh, but I can also remember my father telling my dad that I thought I was going to uh, see if I could get a law faculty position. And I was in what then was a big law firm in Minneapolis. And it was, a, I don't know what word you would use, but, you, you know, you could tell it was sort of an upper crust place. Uh, and I can remember my dad looking at me like, you know, why would you leave this law firm to go teach? Uh, but again, we had a great relationship. He he trusted my choices, and I appreciated the fact that he would share his views with me and then stand back, which he did. So, so what was it that motivated you to give up a, a, a good law firm job to, to make the transition? Well, again, it was funny because uh, – 
uh, first, the, the guy who became my best friend in practice, uh, and I almost immediately bonded, and we talked about the fact that we each thought we might like to try uh, a law professor position at some point if we could land one. And, uh, and so after two years of practice, we each entered the law school employment registry. Uh, and I heard from a number of schools and it included some good schools and uh, was all set to go to what they called the meat market, the interviewing conference in Washington, D.C. And about a month before I got a call from my law faculty mentor, uh, who was on leave and was a senior member of the Watergate Special Prosecution Task Force. And he said to me, we're looking for a young person. It's not in my area, so I can't just hire you. But if you come down and interview for the position, I'm sure they will hire you. Uh, so I went down and I spent the day there and I came back home. And by the time I got to our townhouse in Madison or in Minneapolis, uh, my wife had packed half the house. And I, I told her, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and I will say uh, it's the one professional decision I've made that caused me some sleepless nights. And it had less to do with the decision itself than the reason I had made it. There were good reasons to stay where I was and not to go. Uh, but I concluded that it really was personal inertia uh, that drove this decision for me. And I thought, you know, you're, you're just in your mid-20s. Uh, and uh, you uh, have been practicing law for a couple of years, and you like it, you like the firm, you like the money, uh, you know, you're going to uh, get yourself in a rut. Uh, but I had turned it down, and, the, and, and I had said that if I am not going to move for Watergate, then I'm not going to move to teach either. So before I had this self-reflective period, I canceled all of my interviews. Uh, and it looked like we were going to be staying in Minneapolis. And then that spring, I heard from uh, two schools, uh, the University of Arkansas and Capital University in Columbus, Ohio, uh, who each said they had needs. Was I still interested and would I come and interview? Uh, I did go to both places and interviewed. I got offers from both places. Uh, my uh, faculty host uh, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, was a uh, young professor who uh, later made quite a name for himself, Bill Clinton. Uh, we, we, we had dinner with the, he and his wife, Hillary, or his, I think it was, she was his girlfriend then, Hillary. Uh, but uh, the teaching package and other things made me feel better about capital. And so I went to Columbus for two years and that's where I started. And then two years after that, I came to Pitt. And, and what, was, what was the opening at Pitt that, that drew you there? Well, again, my life is a story of uh, accidental opportunities. Uh, there was a faculty member at Pitt 
uh, who had been a faculty member at Capitol. And in fact, I occupied his old office uh, and Nikki and I rented the house that he and his wife had lived in, but I'd never met him. He was really interested in bringing over as a visiting professor a somewhat more senior member of the faculty who was his best friend and also was my best friend. Uh, the Pitt faculty, perhaps expressing itself in ways that would not have uh, passed muster under federal law, said that they would rather hire somebody a bit younger. Uh, and so my capital friend said to his pit friend, well, we've got a really good young faculty member. You ought to take a look at him then. And so I, I came here uh, and I, I came as a visiting assistant professor with a nine month appointment and no expectations beyond that. Uh, and so in some ways, my greatest professional achievement is 45 years later, I still have a job and I'm still here. <laughs> and, and what led you to give up the, the, the role in, in, at Capitol to take a visiting without necessarily any promise of, of extending further? Well, I thought of uh, Pitt. Uh, clearly, it was a bigger, uh, more prestigious university. Uh, the, the law school was better known and better established. Uh, I, I still had these uh, strongly positive feelings from my adolescence about Pittsburgh. And, and my wife is from northwestern Pennsylvania. And, and so I knew that if this was going to be my professional path, uh, we would never live closer to her family than being in Pittsburgh. I guess Pittsburgh, Buffalo, or Cleveland all would have been within striking distance. So there were a, a lot of factors that uh, came into play. It also was an exciting time for the law school at Pittsburgh. Uh, there was a new building. They were expanding the faculty, uh, a lot of uh, new hires, and uh, it was an exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. And and. At what stage in your time at Pitt did you make the decision to move into the administrative track? Well, I never really made decisions. Again, <laughs> I, I think that uh, uh, my career has been shaped to a very large extent uh, by things not working out for others uh, and uh, people realizing that a change was going to be made. Uh, and looking around and uh, looking at me and saying, well, if we put Mark in there for a little bit, uh, he probably can't mess things up too badly. Uh, so uh, you did not have the chance to know John Murray, uh, who was the, the dean who uh, hired me at Pitt. And then ironically, he left to go back to Villanova as the dean. Uh, and so I was the first faculty member he hired as dean. He became the first faculty member I hired as dean and brought him back to Pitt as a distinguished professor. And then uh, he went on to be a very, very successful president of Duquesne University. John had asked me to be his associate dean 
uh, had a couple of points along the way. Well, I, well, I wasn't a full professor yet, and I uh, didn't think I should do that. Plus, John and I thought about things in very similar ways, and I was not sure how much I could contribute to him. Uh, John's successor was different. He came to me after his first year in the job and asked whether I would become the uh, associate dean for academic affairs. Uh, I was a full professor by then. Uh, we were sufficiently uh, different that I thought we would complement each other. Uh, and uh, so I did that. And little did I know, you, you know, I think when he asked me to be his associate dean, uh, he knew that he was not going to be a long tenured dean here. Uh, and so uh, after I had been associate dean for just about three or four months, uh, he was involved in a, a dispute that was both principled and practical with the central administration. Uh, and he said he was going to step down at the end of the academic year. Well, the central administration of the university and the faculty of the law school had pretty much the same view. Uh, and that was, uh, if you want to leave, we'll move you out of the position now uh, and not wait. Uh, and so then there was uh, a question about uh, who they would name the interim dean. And there were other very reasonable, maybe even stronger choices, uh, but they uh, asked me to do it. And, and that began my life in administration, uh, which I tried, and perhaps we'll talk about this, to bring to an end a couple of times uh, only to get new assignments. But it's been a great life. So can you tell us in that journey, at, at what point did you think that you, you might want to be a, a, a university chancellor or president? And how did that come about? Well, I never really thought that. Uh, so I was the dean of law school uh, for about eight years. And I always thought that I would go back to reclaim my faculty position. And I had this rough idea in my mind uh, that I always wanted to be one of the most respected faculty members. So if they were going to cut the faculty down to 10 people, uh, I would want to feel like my inclusion in that group of 10 would be a pretty easy choice. And I kept teaching while I was dean, but it was hard to uh, meet scholarly expectations. And so I thought, you know, I became dean when I was 37. Uh, so I had a lot of uh, career ahead of me uh, that I shouldn't stay in the position for too long or I'd never be able to go back and uh, genuinely earn the level of respect I would want as a yeah, faculty member. Uh, and so I tried a couple of times to step down. The provost kept talking me out of it. And so finally, I just sent out a notice saying I was going to do it uh, and didn't have a conversation with him. And in the spring of what was to be my last year, the then chancellor uh, asked if I would come over and uh, meet with him. 
I knew the search for my successor had not gone well, so I thought he was going to ask me uh, to stay for another year as dean, which I would have done. Uh, but instead, he asked me whether I would accept a uh, year's assignment as the interim provost or chief academic officer of the institution, uh, which I did. At the close of that year, again, with full intention to go back to the faculty with a sabbatical in mind, I first went off to Germany and did some teaching for a little while. And I came back and I got a call from the chancellor asking whether I could come over and see him. And I did. And he said, uh, you know, I know you've got a sabbatical lined up. I know you wanted to uh, reclaim your faculty life, uh, but we're going to conduct our second search for a new senior vice chancellor for the health sciences. And, you know, that's such an important position here that I really need you to chair the search committee. Well, <laughs> you know, back in those days, I thought nobody said no to the chancellor. I, I now realizing, having been chancellor for 19 years, there are a lot of people who have no problem saying no. Uh, but I accepted that assignment, and I thought it would be interesting. And, uh, you know, David, it, it gave me a level of training for the chancellor's position that few people have. Uh, because I'd been a faculty member here, I'd been a dean here, I'd been the chief academic officer, I had been totally immersed in the health sciences and the search for the uh, leader of that important part of the university. And so my committee and I met with the chancellor uh, one Friday afternoon to give him our names. Uh, and he asked if I would stay afterward to have a chat with him. Well, it was my son's birthday. I wanted to get home. But again, I thought, you know, you don't say no to the chancellor. Well, it turned out that he wanted to apologize to me. And he said, you know, you've done a great job. You've given me four names. Any one of these would be a great senior vice chancellor. But... Right before I met with you, uh, I met with the chair of the board and the chair elect of the board, and I'm not going to be chancellor for as long as I thought I would be. And if they don't know who's going to be chancellor, then they probably will put off the uh, recruitment of the senior vice chancellor. Uh, and so, you know, in a way, your work will have been for nothing. Uh, and it turned out that it uh, wasn't for nothing. And interestingly, the chair-elect of the board was a graduate of the law school, and he was a generous graduate of the law school, and so I knew him because I had written letters to him thanking him. Uh, and one of his sons had been my student, but I had never met him because he had been uh, basically running one of Pittsburgh's big corporations in Europe during my years as dean. Uh, and in the end, uh, he came to me and asked whether I would uh, be willing to serve as interim chancellor. Uh, and of course, I agreed to 
do that. Uh, and that really was the, uh, you know, the, the, the conclusive decision that I was going to be an administrator for most of my career, uh, though I didn't dream that I would serve as chancellor for 19 years. And so when you add up all of those years, it's, uh, it's a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell, it, it sounds like the the person you succeeded as chancellor was not necessarily leaving of his own accord. What what, what was the situation you were stepping into there? And, and how did you go about, you'd obviously had an amazing preparation as faculty dean and then getting the overview of the health sciences, which for those who are not as familiar with Pitt may not know, but it's particularly significant to the overall university, right? The, the strength in the health sciences. So you really had a, an overview that few people would have. But, yes. but, but when, when you came into that role as interim, I, did they do a national search? Or yes. how, how did that all go sort they, of play they out? They did do a national search that year. And at the end of that search, uh, concluded that they would uh, offer the position to me. And that was a decision principally of the uh, Board of Trustees, though obviously all constituent groups of the uh, university were involved in the uh, search process. And the, the situation was not a good one. Uh, I would say... Uh, first, that uh, relationships between the administration and the principal constituent groups uh, of the university were very bad. So board administration relations were bad. Faculty administration relations were bad. Staff administration relations were bad. Uh, Morale in the university as a whole was very low. And this really had started uh, in the final years of the provost or, or of the chancellor who preceded my predecessor, who was a very accomplished leader, but who uh, probably stayed too long. Uh, followed by uh, a person, all these people, by the way, I admire and I was friends with. You know, the, uh, the chancellor I succeeded came to me and he said, uh, you know, they almost certainly will ask you to be interim chancellor, Mark. And uh, I don't know whether that would be good for you but it would be good for the university and it would be good for me. I'm planning to stay and I would like to have someone I know and trust in the position. Uh, I'm not sure why. Well, well, so this period of uh, low morale, uh, you know, went back eight or 10 years, I would say. And there were a series of problems within the university. It was almost like uh, you would pick up the morning edition of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette wanting to see what bad thing was going to be on the front page of the uh, newspaper that day. Uh, and, and we had what I came to consider to be a flawed business model. 
I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it was, but there is a Woody Allen movie that begins with this dialogue between two women who have just returned from a week at a resort in the Catskills, I think. And uh, the one says, the food was so terrible, I could hardly eat it. And the other says, Yes, and there wasn't enough of it either. (laughs) Well, the board had commissioned before I became the interim chancellor formally uh, an external review of the university. uh, And it promised that uh, that review would be made public, uh, whatever it said. Well, one of the things that it said was almost a takeoff on that you don't have good enough students and you don't have enough of them either. Uh, So, you know, the message was you're not as a university living up to your potential uh, in terms of the uh, student body, uh, but also you don't have a business model that is sustainable because you don't have enough students. Uh, So on a whole range of levels, uh, yeah, you know, the athletic programs, particularly football and men's basketball, were uh, just taking a shellacking, uh, you know, and and everybody wants to be proud of where they work. Uh, and, and so it was a, uh, a, a time of struggle in that sense, too. And, and you know, David, what can happen in a university that is people can retreat to their own disciplines. Uh, and, and, you know, so they can make do in their own minds by saying, well, the university may not be doing so well, but this biology department is really going places. And, you know, maybe that's a, uh, uh, a good thing for the mental health of the individuals, but it's a bad thing for the organization when people could retreat that way and not feel as if they're committed to the whole. No question. And so coming in like that, you would obviously build a good network of colleagues. You had a good knowledge of what some of the issues were. How did you go about approaching first that interim year? Because that's a little bit awkward. You don't know if you're doing a plan, you know, the ability to then implement it. And, and then once you were named the permanent chancellor, how did you go about turning things around? Well, you know, one thing I want to say is you've said I knew the institution. The other big advantage that I had uh, was that the institution knew me. Uh, And that doesn't mean every individual knew me. It doesn't mean that every uh, individual necessarily had the highest uh, opinion of me. But it did mean they knew uh, that I cared for the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and that I was, I was known even back in those days as a very hard worker. Uh, and I think people recognized that I had done a good job as dean of the law school. People thought I had done a good job as interim provost. People thought I had done a good job in chairing the search committee. And so with each of those things, there was a further rippling within the institution. And so It's not as if people were willing to give me a pass, but I think they were willing to give me time. And, uh, you know, what I said to the people on my team, both that year and 
this was a recurring message uh, in the early years after I had been named the uh, uh, chancellor without the time-limiting adjective in front of the title, uh, was we've got to demonstrate to people uh, that we can deliver, uh, that there are things that we can do for this university that will make their lives better and make it more possible for them to advance their own ambitious agendas. Uh, I uh, marched into the fray uh, fully understanding that in the uh, stereotypical academic setting, uh, a faculty member is entitled to say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, in whatever tone he wants, to whomever he wants. But kind of the cardinal sin for an administrator is to be uh, lacking in respect. Uh, and that was easy for me. That's kind of my personality anyway. And, you know, I would not uh, have received an offer if the uh, board had not been supportive of me. Uh, and so repairing those relationships was uh, very important and had to be done on a shorter term. Uh, and, and, you know, that's funny, too. You talked about plans. Well, uh, the, the board had commissioned uh, this external review of the university before I was in a position to even object if I had wanted to. And my main objection was that the person who was to, uh, you, you know, not only chair, but really recruit this group uh, was not somebody in my mind who had uh, any meaningful experience with a research university. Uh, and I, I thought, well, what, what am I going to do about this? And so what I decided, and, and this was in conjunction with uh, some of the other people on the senior team, particularly the academic leadership, the uh, provost uh, and the senior vice chancellor for the health sciences. Uh, but I figured that my only chance uh and, and really, this was for the university's benefit, with the benefits for me being kind of ancillary, uh, was that we needed to get to the board before he got to the board. Uh, and so I arranged with the board chair to have a series of Saturday retreats. Uh, and they were held on campus, but they went from... Uh, early in the morning until the end of the afternoon, and we had uh, an agenda for each one of them. Uh, and there were only three of us who spoke, and that was the chancellor, the provost, and the senior vice chancellor for the health sciences. And we gave them our perceptions of the university, its challenges, and its opportunities. Uh, we moved from that to developing uh, a uh, series of priority statements for the university. And 
there was a real bonding that went on uh, in those retreat sessions. I can remember the first one, looking out into the group and seeing the man who was the CEO of Mellon Financial with his hand in the air at 4.30. He still wanted to talk uh, and, and learn more and contribute more. And I, I do think that first they came to know the university far, far better. And when the report came in from the external group, uh, they had a context within which to place it. And because we had not only been looking at the current condition of the university, but where we wanted to take it, when we released it, we actually also were able to say, and we're going to do something about this, and here are some of the things we're going to do. Uh, so it turned into a uh, great experience. Uh, everyone on the board knew what those five priority statements were, uh, and they were quite general. But then every year, uh, we would go to the board and we would tell them, here's what we're going to do to advance it. Uh, if we didn't somehow uh, meet or surpass a goal, we'd have to come back with an explanation. I, I had to negotiate the uh, kind of uh, measurables along the way with the board chair, and then we would take them to the board. So it was a, a fairly rigorous undertaking but I thought that it was perfect in the sense that all of the goals were generally stated and the implementation was left to the officers of the university, which is the way it should be. And, you know, they named me uh, chancellor and CEO. Uh, and I loved my board chair. Uh, and I came to recognize uh, with each passing year more clearly how much I owed him for the discipline he had instilled in us. But that does not mean that he was easy to deal with. Uh, and so we would uh, fairly often, uh, you know, kind of bang heads in private and then in the end, he would say, well, you're the CEO. You know, it's going to be your decision. Uh, and, you know, you'll be accountable uh, for it, which is the way it should be. And when I tell you uh, that uh, we occasionally banged heads, let me say that before he came to the board at Pitt, he was on the board at uh, St. Vincent's, where he had gone as an undergraduate. And he used to go into the board meetings there and plant in front of himself uh, a placard about stamping out tenure. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so he was not one to shy away from confrontation, but we came to have enormous respect for each other. And, uh, and I learned that some of the things that he kind of forced on us uh, were things that we did not fully appreciate at the time, but 
clearly were in the best interests of the university. So what would be examples of that? Oh, you know, like getting this external report. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I probably would have resisted that uh, no matter who they were going to uh, bring in, particularly when they said they were going to, uh, uh, who they were going to name. And, and, you know, but, but by that point, all I was left with was, yeah, I think there was one spot on the team left to be filled. And uh, one of the possibilities was the president of the University of Minnesota. Well, they kept asking me about the others, and I'd just say, I want the president of the University of Minnesota. And then they'd come back and I'd say, no, I want the president of the University of Minnesota because I wanted uh, someone who had experience leading a big, complicated research university to be a member of that group of four or five people. And Mark, you mentioned the five broad areas that you identified in that plan. Can you just say what what those were? Yes, they were to... Uh, pursue excellence in undergraduate education because Pitt by reputation was known more for the quality of many of its graduate and professional programs. Uh, Second was to maintain excellence in research. Uh, The third was to partner uh, in community development. Uh, The fourth was to operate in an efficient and cost-effective manner and the third was to attract an adequate resource base uh, for us to uh, successfully pursue our goals. The sixth was for the board to recruit a good chancellor. I, I left that off uh, because it uh, that that was taken care of for better or for worse in short order. Yep. Mm. So. So the the picture you painted of the pit that you sort of inherited as chancellor and where it is today is is really dramatically different, and I think it speaks to to your leadership and and what what Pat has done since. Um, can you tell how did you go about? You, one of those was maintaining research, but the the advancement of Pitt in research is really one of the remarkable parts of your tenure. I think the numbers were something like 230 million a year in research revenue when you started and over 800 million by the time you were you had completed. How did you go about that kind of, you know, sort of orders of magnitude advancing of the the research stature while also not, you know, emphasizing undergraduate education. So it wasn't an either or. It wasn't an either or. And, you know, I have come to believe that uh, the principal reputation drivers uh, for uh, a university of our size are going to be medicine and undergraduate education. Everybody cares about medicine. Uh, It gets a lot of attention and everybody cares about undergraduate education. Now, uh, you you know, your professional schools and your graduate programs can be uh, big drivers, too. And Pitt always has had perhaps the top philosophy programs in the world, certainly among the top three. But, you know, that's not the kind of thing people on the street corner talk about. But they will talk about organ transplantation, and they will talk about 
uh, how hard it is for uh, the uh, children of their friends and colleagues to get into Pitt because the undergraduate education has uh, taken off. Uh, so those really did become priorities for us. Uh, and in terms of research, let me say first that, you know, so much of the credit goes to the senior vice chancellor for the health sciences and to the provost. Uh, and in those positions, uh, yeah, you know, first there was Tom Detry, who may be the most accomplished academic leader I've ever known, uh, and followed by Art Levine, who is uh, almost uh, superhuman in his abilities too, and and Jim Marr, who'd been the chair of the physics department, followed by Patty Beeson from the economics department. You know, they had to bring me along. I remember Jim Marr having to sit in my office and explain to me uh, why we should make investments in nanotechnology. I didn't know, but he did. Uh, and uh, Tom Detry and Art Levine certainly knew about the health sciences. And so when we started, uh, you know that 230 million in uh, annual federal research grants uh, would have put us in the top 25 in the country. So that was already pretty darn good company. Uh, and I can remember our saying, well, can we get into the top 20? Then can we get into the top 15? Then can we get into the top 10? Then can we stay in the top 10? Because, of course, everybody you're competing with is university and they're trying to get better too. And then we got into the top five. And then the question was, can you stay in the top five, uh, which we have been able to do. Uh, so it was a combination of ambition. Uh, the health sciences already were uh, on a steady march uh, to the top. Uh, and then the, the, the march became uh, maybe not quite a sprint, but uh, the upward trajectory really veered sharply uh, upward. Uh, and, and again, I would say it was in no small measure uh, having people who had a good sense for where science was going to go next. Uh, and also a, uh, a keen ability to assess talent. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, again, I want to, I'll take some credit for the ambition and I'll take some credit for creating a, a framework for moving forward uh, and, and to, to make this all workable. Uh, but really, it was my partners who had the uh, insights uh, that permitted us to uh, do that. And, and, you know, it feels pretty good uh, when you're uh, out on the streets. I remember having a conversation with a man who uh, had been the president of Johns Hopkins. Uh, and he said, Mark, what are you guys doing at Pitt? You know, you've always been a good university, but these last several years, holy cow. Well, you know, that becomes reinforcing. And and then I, I would have, 
faculty members on campus say, you know, in our school, uh, we used to worry about the university keeping up with us. Now we're worried about our keeping up with the university. Well, that's what you want. And, and I, I'm sure you have found this too, that, uh, you know, not only does everybody want to be proud of where they work, but they want to be proud of their own work. Uh, and uh, to the extent you can uh, get them to think ambitiously and to feel as if that kind of thinking will be supported. You know, we started recruiting people from Harvard and Penn and Wisconsin, and uh, and it wasn't because we were richer than they were, uh, and it wasn't because we had a, uh, uh, a stronger pedigree than they did, but it was because, I think, in the main, they thought that they were presented with a better chance to do their own ambitious work here. Uh, and so that was a key. And when you say a better chance for them to pursue, you know, the, their ambitions here, you know, Pennsylvania is not known for its generous funding of higher ed. And a lot of those institutions you were recruiting away from and competing with, they had billions and billions of more dollars than Pitt in their endowments. So how how are you able to create the environment and the resources? Because medical research, as you say, it's a, it's a key driver of reputation, but it's also a very expensive uh, uh, thing to do. And so, so how did you not only, you know, compete with those, but manage to climb so significantly? Well, you know, there, there may be three things that uh, helped us stand out. Uh, one was people could look at uh, the uh, record we were building for attracting support uh, and think, you know, this isn't just all about individual faculty making grant applications. There's there's something about the uh, the, the the culture and uh, the mix in which they're working. Uh, second, of course, uh, so much. Uh, research these days cuts across disciplinary lines. Uh, and we were very good at, uh, you know, supporting projects uh, that bridged uh, traditional disciplinary divides and traditional institutional divides. So our partnerships with Carnegie Mellon uh, were very important and attractive because we had such complementary strengths. The third thing that we had going for us, and I don't want to uh, put this third in a way that makes it seem as if I'm underestimating it because I'm not, uh, but that was our partnership with uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, also known as UPMC, uh, which today I believe is the country's largest academic medical center. Uh, it has been terribly successful. Uh, our partnership with uh, UPMC has been grounded in the belief that we need each other uh, so that uh, UPMC leaders would say uh, it is the PIP faculty uh, you, you know, whose academic leaders are our clinical leaders and whose faculty members are doing the path-breaking work uh, that really 
sets us apart from others. And, and so what you find, David, at a lot of uh, universities who have a relationship with a medical center uh, is that when times get tough, the first thing that is cut is support from clinical revenues for uh, academic work. And that was never the case here uh, because the UPMC leaders uh, believed that the investments they were making in uh, research in the health sciences at the University of Pittsburgh were investments in their own future. Uh, and as you were suggesting, sometimes you need uh, some resources that you, first, sometimes you need to have resources in hand to successfully pursue the federal grants. Sometimes you need to have some resources that you can use to complement the federal grants that came in. And so the, uh, the relationship between uh, Pitt and UPMC uh, has been absolutely critical to the success of both organizations, I would say. So, Mark, obviously the relationship that you had with uh, what became known as UPMC was really pivotal to the success of the university moving forward. How, how did that evolve over your tenure? Uh, early in my tenure, uh, a decision was made to take a look at that relationship and see if there were ways in which we thought it could be improved uh, with the interests of both the health system and the university in mind. Uh, to that point, the Faculty of the university were the clinical leaders of the health system. Uh, that remains the case. Uh, at that point, uh, all of the senior officers of UPMC were actually employees of the university, uh, which received reimbursement for those uh, salaries. That changed they became employees of UPMC. Uh, UPMC had always had its own board, so that even if uh, the president of the health system was a university employee who reported to the chancellor in some ways, uh, he also had an independent board to which he reported. And so in some ways, the changes really regularized the relationships and made what was down on paper uh, kind of more consistent with what was uh, happening in real life. Uh, but there were reasons that drove this move uh, from the university's perspective. Uh, one was uh, financial protection. Uh, we were moving through a time when there were major universities uh, put at some serious risk because of the losses that were being incurred by their health systems. Uh, at the same time, uh, we also recognized that the university was probably not best equipped to 
manage the delivery of healthcare. Uh, and that uh, university processes, and particularly those that involve shared governance, uh, could be an impediment uh, to the kind of more rapid decision-making that might be required in a highly competitive uh, healthcare delivery world. And so we move forward on that basis. And uh, essentially, the man who then was general counsel for the UPMC, uh, George Huber, uh, and Jeff Romoff and I uh, negotiated these documents, but negotiated them with a, uh, an interest in a common endpoint. Uh, so it wasn't contentious. It was instead, well, how do we make this work better? Uh, because uh, we were uh, really giving up uh, some of the management prerogatives that the university would have had. Uh, we also, well, we created a stack of documents that would at least rise to my knee, if my, my mid-thigh, if they were piled on the floor. Uh, and, and they include uh, reserve powers on the part of the university uh, that relate to things that begin touching on academics, for example. Uh, but we almost never have had to uh, consult those documents. Uh, we have renewed them. Uh, at that point in time, uh, the CEO of the uh, health system and I agreed that we were just going to renew them in their current form, because if we started taking a close look at them, we would find plenty of things to disagree about in concept. But in reality, what really made the partnership work was the recognition uh, within the leadership of both organizations that we needed each other. Uh, Pitt needed UPMC to be strong. UPMC needed Pitt to be strong. I, I, I also will say that some of the progress made by the university uh, helped in that relationship uh, because, uh, you, you know, the, the medical and health sciences side of the university already was on something of a fast track, beginning with uh, organ transplantation. But I can remember conversations with the UPMC CEO where he was talking with real respect about what we had done in undergraduate education. Uh, and so, it, it, in a sense, it was a uh, relationship grounded in respect and a recognition of a mutual need on either side of the partnership. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that another of those five pillars of, of your plan had been about uh, relations with the community. Yes. And when you came in, just as Pitt was not in a great way and you were able to take it forward, Pittsburgh was still recovering, right? The, the steel industry, which your father had worked for and had really been the lifeblood of not just Pittsburgh, but had built really a lot of the world, right, out, out of that, had, had collapsed. And, and a lot of the surrounding manufacturing base um, 
you and your counterpart Jerry Cohen at uh, at Carnegie Mellon played a huge role in helping the renaissance of of Pittsburgh. Can, can you talk about that journey that ultimately led to the two of you being recognized with the Elsie Hillman Lifetime Achievement Award? Um, how did that partnership form, and and what was the what was the role between these two great immediately adjacent research universities and, and and the renaissance of Pittsburgh. Well, and I should say this partnering in community development was a plank uh, of the Pitt plan before Jerry arrived. So there were the beginnings of things between his predecessor, Robert Morabian, and me. Uh, but when Jerry came... Uh, you know, something special began to happen. Uh, we were in touch with each other before he uh, came to Pittsburgh. We actually had to meet at the National Science Foundation before he was formally in the job to uh, undertake a special mission to protect the Pittsburgh Supercomputing Center. Uh, and when we started talking, it, you know, it was almost like we looked at each other and we said, uh, if you combine uh, the strengths of Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, which are significant alone and which are highly complementary, uh, there is only one neighborhood in America where you can find greater academic firepower. Uh, and that is Cambridge, Massachusetts, where you've got Harvard and MIT. Uh, and so we vowed that we were going to make partnering with the other university uh, a high priority in both institutions. And I should say that, you know, the, the faculty members in certain disciplines always had been sufficiently resourceful that they found ways to do things together, uh, even when that was not encouraged by the leadership of the universities. And there was a period of time, in fairness, when the chancellor at Pitt and the uh, president at CMU were working so hard to build up the strengths of their own institutions that partnering may have been more difficult than it was for Jerry and me. And, and even at that, it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, you're a competitive guy, David. I know that. And, uh, you know, so something good would happen at Carnegie Mellon. And my first inclination was to say, well, why didn't it happen at Pitt? And then I'd have to tell myself, well, the fact is it didn't happen at Pitt. So isn't it great that it happened at Carnegie Mellon? And I know the same was true for Jerry. Uh, and so we were able to combine first on purely academic uh, initiatives to bring to Pittsburgh uh, federally funded centers uh, that neither institution alone could have had a prayer of attracting, uh, but together we could get them. Uh, we also started uh, with a good bit of help from the uh, administration of uh, Governor Ridge in, in Harrisburg, who was committed to 
technology-based economic development, uh, we started initiatives like the uh, Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse and the Digital Greenhouse and the Robotics Foundry. And, and basically, Jerry and I were the founding co-chairs of uh, all of those things. And the thing about research dollars is that you get an immediate benefit uh, and you have the prospect of longer term rewards as well. Uh, so as soon as that $800 million, or if you combine the two, over a billion dollars coming into the Pittsburgh economy, well, that's paying the salaries of researchers, but it's paying the salaries of staff. It's being passed on to the barbers who cut their hair and the grocery stores where they buy food and the restaurants where they dine. So right away, you're getting a, uh, a boost to the economy. Uh, but then you could also look at those research expenditures and say, well, maybe what you're doing is seeding uh, the industries of the future. Put another way, through many, many, many successive years here in Pittsburgh, the only employment super sector that added jobs year after year after year uh, was healthcare and education. Uh, and so right at that moment, uh, we were uh, providing a boost to an economy that badly needed it. And that also, you know, helped us with the, the mission that we have at Chatham and at Pitt and at Carlo and at Duquesne, as well as CMU. Uh, you know, we were creating opportunities for our graduates here. You know, in the early years, a lot of uh, graduates would say, uh, you know, I'd like to stay in Pittsburgh, but I've got to have a reasonable professional opportunity. And it wasn't always here. I take pride in the fact that my assistant is a proud Chatham graduate who came to the university with a Chatham biology degree and was working uh, in labs here that were funded by federal dollars. Uh, and so it's a, a good thing today. And, uh, you, you know, the hope is that it will be an even better thing tomorrow. And, I, I, you know, one of the things I've loved about being in Pittsburgh is the extent of cooperation among the 11 colleges and universities that are within the city. And, and you reference, you know, the only place with greater concentration of research dollars is Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, I, I did my undergrad there and I know, you know, Harvard, MIT, BU, Northeastern, they, they cohabit in Boston, but they don't get along particularly well. And, and, and so to what do you attribute the, the level of cooperation that you see in higher ed in Pittsburgh that really has been at the heart of that eds and meds renaissance? Well, I think a part of it is the, the culture of the region uh, and the fact that uh, Pittsburgh is in some ways an ideal sized community. Uh, it's big enough to be interesting, but small enough that you really do feel like you're a part of it. Uh, 
uh, and you owe something to it. And if there are ways you can contribute to make the community better, you're making your home better. Uh, but I also think that the array of higher education institutions in Pittsburgh is distinctive in part because those institutions are distinctive from each other. So clearly there are ways in which we overlap and uh, there are areas in which we might compete. Uh, but mainly, I would say, hey, I love Chatham. I, I, I can tell you the reasons that I love Chatham. I, I, I love Duquesne. Uh, yeah, you know, I love La Roche. Uh, and I can't leave out now Point Park and Robert Morris and Carnegie Mellon. I'm going to get trouble CCAC. Uh, you, you know, I think it's easy to see uh, that the community that we care about uh, is better served if we're all strong. And we're all going to be stronger if we're cooperating with each other. And the existence of a group like the Pittsburgh Council on Higher Education provides an established structure uh, for that. And I think probably avoids some of the unfortunate problems uh, that have existed elsewhere in higher education. I, you know, the relationships across the state uh, between independent institutions and the state-owned and state-related institutions aren't what they once were, which I think is too bad. But I think that, I, I'm not going to point fingers, but I do think that it was a product in no small measure of Oh, uh, and not all institutions extending the kind of respect that they should have to others who are basically doing many of the same things and contributing to the greater good. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been curious about, I part of my own research had studied life science clusters around the world. And one of the things you see is a really high correlation between biomedical life science research dollars and the leading clusters. And in San Diego with UCSD, in, in Boston with MIT and Harvard, um, it's been interesting here, as you said, eds and meds, those have been the two driving sectors. And we've seen a lot of startup growth in, in many of the areas of strength for CMU. So the robotics, driverless cars, AI, those things. And UPMC, Highmark, obviously very, very large employers and healthcare delivery is huge. But given the size of the research enterprise, we haven't seen the same sort of growth trajectory for the life sciences. And I'm curious why you think that is. Uh, you know, one thing is I think it takes time. It's, it's, a, it's a longer process uh, than... Uh, you know, Hewlett and Packard getting together in a garage and uh, coming up with something that they could market uh, immediately. It, it's much more complicated with the trials and everything that you've got to go through uh, with uh, biomedical advances. And, of course, we saw uh, the contributions that came from Pittsburgh in uh, the development of the COVID vaccine. So uh, we're there. 
And in some places, it got started in a different way. You know, you mentioned San Francisco, uh, and I smile because uh, San Francisco got its start when University of Pittsburgh graduate Herb Boyer, uh, you know, did the pathbreaking gene splicing research uh, and then became a co-founder of Genentech. Right. Uh, and, and that was the beginning, really, not just of uh, the Northern California uh, biotech industry, but the country's biotech yep. industry. Also, by the way, uh, supported by investments from Pittsburgher Henry Hillman. And so you think, well, why couldn't that have happened in Pittsburgh? And in San Diego, too, you've had uh, a breakthrough company or two. Uh, and we haven't had that yet here. So there is growth. But you're right, we haven't yet seen the kind of explosion uh, in biotech uh, that hopefully still will come. Yep. Actually, one of my old colleagues at the Keck Graduate Institute had a really interesting paper which showed that what you really need for a successful biotech cluster is to have one spectacular failure. So in San Diego, Hybratech, which was after Genentech, one of the very first companies, right? They spun out of UCSD, got $300 million from Eli Lilly, who took them over, and then it completely failed. But that spawned another 90 companies because you had given a lot of young scientists money and a little taste of starting a company. And so that whole cluster near UCSD really came out of one, one firm that got quite far but then didn't make it. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's worth underscoring the fact that you began in each of those cases with a great university producing great research. Uh, and, and, you know, I think people in Pittsburgh in particular probably don't appreciate the strength of the University of California at San Francisco or the University of California at San Diego, uh, where you're talking about concentrations of research talent and power again uh, that are equal to anything, anywhere and uh, of course, when you talk about Cambridge, Massachusetts and uh, Harvard and MIT, uh, that needs no explanation. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Mark, this, this has been a, a, a great pleasure. I, I hope that you'll come back and we'll be able to continue a, a part two of this. But it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to talk with you about this history. Well, thank you for giving me that opportunity, David, and I'll look forward to a continuation if you uh, actually do extend that invitation. Uh, uh, you can count on. Thanks so much. Thank you.